and you can find that on page 319. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, Your servant is one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me, and I would see that they receive justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way towards all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent, a secret, sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They'd been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahitophel, the Gileonite, David's counsellor, to come from Giloah, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. Thank you very much indeed, Peter, for that uh, reading. Good morning, everybody. My name is Danny. And uh, as Joe said, uh, we very much look forward to meeting you if you're new. And I uh, hope this is the first of many, many Sundays uh, that you'll be with us. Well, you might want to keep that open uh, in front of you uh, to Samuel uh, 15. And if you turn to the inside of this sheet, hopefully you were handed on the way in, you'll find an outline that will help us. There comes a time, I think, um, when every Christian disciple and every Christian church will feel a longing for power and greatness. See, God has given his people a task to do in the world, which is very big and very difficult. Our mission, given by Jesus himself, is nothing less than to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to make disciples of all nations, to build the church before Jesus returns. It's a tremendous task, isn't it, that Jesus has given his people. It's big. 
But the task is not only big, it's difficult because it's opposed by God's enemies. Making disciples, preaching the gospel, building the church will involve a painful struggle against Satan and sin and all who refuse to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. The mission that we're involved in is a war that will cost us more blood, toil, sweat and tears than any physical war can. God has given us a task that is big and difficult. And this is why every Christian disciple and every church will at some point feel the longing for power and strength and greatness. We want power to build the church for God. We want greatness to influence the world for God. We want strength to fight the enemies of God. But in our longing for these things, it is very easy to go wrong. And the mistake we make is to assume that the way God exercises his power to grow his kingdom is the same as the way we exercise our power to grow human kingdoms. But the two could not be more different. You can do the work of the world the world's way, or you can do the work of God God's way. But you can't do the work of God the world's way. If you do, it won't be the work of God that you're doing. And that is one of the lessons that we're going to learn as we dive back into the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel, this term. And it's the big idea, the big lesson that we're going to see in our passage this morning. But first we need to do a little bit of setting the scene. We ended the last series with the handsome Prince Absalom. Just remember the guy with the big hairdo. David's eldest surviving son and heir, returning to Jerusalem from having been in hiding. And you may remember he was in hiding because he murdered his brother Amnon. And you may remember he murdered his brother Amnon in revenge for the fact that Amnon had raped his sister Tamar, getting a feel for the family that we're talking about. And at the end of a long and messy process narrated in chapter 14, David, having kept Absalom at arm's length for quite a long time, several years... If you glance down at 1433, just before our chapter begins, David is formally reconciled to his son. Now in that chapter, uh, which we looked at roughly a year ago, I think, we saw some hints of this person, Absalom. We began to get to know him a little bit. And we saw a worrying strain of vanity as he kind of builds this rock star aura around himself. But now, as he launches a conspiracy against his own father, King David, we learn what Absalom is really like, what he really wants, and crucially, how he intends to get it. And therefore, these next few chapters, as we look at Absalom's conspiracy in some detail, it's kind of like having an insider's guide to how to succeed in the world, the world's way in contrast to how to do the work of God, God's way. So if Absalom could have written one of those kind of self-help business guru books, you know, 10 ways to succeed in the world, that kind of thing, this is it. Before we look at Absalom's conspiracy in detail, though, I want to zoom out and set it in context so we can see why this matters. And as you'll see on the sheet, the context is a story within a story within a story. 
So firstly, the section of 2 Samuel that we are going to cover over the next seven weeks is a distinct section of the bigger story of 1 and 2 Samuel, which we've been looking at for several years with its own shape and themes. The opening words of 15 verse 1, in the course of time, are a little clue that we are beginning a new narrative section that runs to the end of chapter 20. And one way to quickly grasp what is happening in these six chapters is to think about the shape of the story that we are being told. And that shape, just slightly simplified, looks like this on the screen. It begins with a rebellion being launched, as we'll see. As soon as he hears about this, David takes flight into the wilderness. David goes into exile. There follows a series of clashes between the two sides. First, a clash of advisors, where the wisdom and advice and strategy of the two sides are pitted against each other. It's an exciting little section that reads a little bit like a Cold War spy story at times. And then that leads to a clash of armies, which leads to David's victory over the rebels and enables his eventual return to Jerusalem. And finally, the rebellion, and then a little mini-rebellion afterwards, is crushed, and David rules uncontested. And so what do you notice about that basic shape of these six chapters that we're going to look at over the next seven weeks? It's a, a story, to borrow a phrase from a certain Bilbo Baggins, it's a story of there and back again. It's a story of exile and return. That's the shape of the story that we're going to look at over these few weeks. But of course, the story told in 15 to 20 is just one part of the bigger story of 1 and 2 Samuel, which, by the way, we should always treat as one book, even though they come to us in two parts. You may remember, if you've been here for quite some time, I forget now how long we've been in these books, but it's several years, you may just remember, and Joe reminded us of it earlier, that the two books of 1 and 2 Samuel also have a particular shape and theme, a particular kind of idea driving through it. And that is the story of the rise and fall of two kingdoms, the kingdom of Saul and the kingdom of David. And it's the difference between those two kingdoms that has been exercising the narrator and exercising us as we've been working our way through the book. And it began, remember, with the desperate sadness of a childless woman called Hannah, a childless, persecuted woman. And it began by God hearing Hannah's prayers, opening her womb, and giving the world the prophet Samuel. And so these great events, the rise and fall of kingdoms, begin with a tiny, insignificant event, the birth of a child, in answer to a prayer. And as Joe reminded us, Hannah's song gives us the theme of the book. It tells us how God is going to build his kingdom in contrast to how the world builds their kingdoms. Hannah tells us in her song that God loves to bring great reversals from small beginnings. He can end the pain of a childless woman. He can answer the prayers of a nobody. He can bring down the mighty and proud to reveal his strength. And so beginning with that theme tune, that is what we see played out in the story so far. Remember the two kings, Saul, tall, 
handsome, popular, a bit like another person we'll see in a moment. He is the kind of king Israel wants. And he wants to bring his kingdom and defeat his enemies by human power and strength and greatness and wisdom. But what we've seen is that that kingdom, as it falls into decline, is not the kingdom of God. God is not going to bring his kingdom that way. And so God takes another king, David, small, unknown, a nobody, inexperienced. David, who slays God's enemy with a single stone because he can trust God. Here is the kingdom that comes God's way. Well, that's the story of 1 and 2 Samuel in a nutshell. But it's very important to remember that the story of 1 and 2 Samuel is itself part of an even bigger story, the story of the whole Bible. And as we saw right at the end of Matthew 13, and if you're in a growth group, you will have been thinking about this week, that we understand Jesus Christ in the new as we understand him in the old. See, if you think about the story of the whole Bible, the story of humanity and Israel is also a there and back again story. A story of exile and return. There is the exile right at the beginning of the man and woman as they are cast out of the Garden of Eden because of their sin. It's an exile awaiting a return. Then there's the story of the wandering of the people in the wilderness at the time of Moses and the coming home to the promised land. And then there is the exile of the nation of Israel after David's son Solomon, an exile in the wilderness of Babylon. But the biggest exile of all is the exile and return of Jesus Christ, who goes into the exile of death and returns in resurrection. And so to understand these six chapters of 2 Samuel, we need to remember that like the whole of the Old Testament, it is here to teach us about Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to see is that David's there and back again story foreshadows Jesus' there and back again story. We're going to see what God did for David, he will do for Israel, and he will do for Jesus, and in Jesus he will do for humanity. Exile and return, wilderness to Garden City, suffering and glory, death and resurrection. And so more than anything else, these chapters are going to be a story of hope. And I don't know about you, but I think hope is just what we need right now. But as we think about this, there is one difference we must keep in mind. As we compare the story of David with the story of Jesus, there's one difference that is very important to keep in mind. Just as for humanity and for Israel, David's exile is a result of his own sin. And that is most certainly not the case for Jesus. See, last time we were in 2 Samuel, we saw that David reached a high point in his kingship. His kingdom began to look like the kingdom of God. And it was at that very moment that David flagrantly rebelled against God by committing adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband. Amazingly, the prophet Nathan tells him in 12.13 that the Lord has taken away his sin. 
But he also tells him that his sin will have long and terrible consequences for him and his family and the kingdom. So in 2, 12 verse uh, 10, he says, The sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And so what we're looking at in these chapters are the first wave of those consequences rolling out for David as he loses his kingdom, is cast back into the wilderness, a fugitive on the run from his own son. Well, I hope that little introduction has got us up to speed and whet our appetites for the weeks ahead. But now let's turn back to that handsome prince with the big hairdo and the even bigger ego. And the story, as you'll see on the sheet, begins with two phases of a rebellion. First, a public one, and then a secret one. So I'm going to, a, 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 a secret one. So I'm going to pray and ask for God's help as we turn to his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that you have given us your word and your spirit so that we might hear your voice and not be captivated by the world and its deceits. We ask that you'd graciously grant us soft hearts, willing minds and eager ears to listen carefully, to think, to actively grow in understanding, and that we might believe as we hear your voice so we might change and be people of faith and love and hope in this dark world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's look then at the public campaign of a people's prince. Before Absalom takes any steps towards an actual rebellion, he knows he's got to win the hearts and minds of the people. And he does this with great political skill and patience. There are three strategies he employs, and I think we will find them surprisingly, maybe depressingly familiar in our world today. First, long before the age of social media influences and spin doctors, Absalom carefully cultivates his public image. Look at verse 1. In the course of time, Absalom provides himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. The narrator has already told us about Absalom's good looks, in which he takes enormous pride. Just skip over with your eye to 14, 25, and 26, where we get a general comment on his superlative bodily perfection, verse 25. And then we zero in on the lavish abundance of hair, verse 26, which he weighs, remember, every year, and displays in this kind of ritual of masculine vitality. Later, we're going to be told, in chapter 18, that his hair will actually... Uh, get him into trouble, and we're going to be told in chapter 18 that he erects a statue of himself as a monument to himself, which he names after himself. It's a kind of an Instagram account uh, of the first millennium influencer. And so we're getting an idea, aren't we, of a beautiful-looking man, a narcissistic, entitled rock star, whose main interest in life is carefully curating his celebrity status. How first millennium, how 2022 this feels. And that is the backdrop to what he's doing in verse 1. Nobody who lives in the narrow, winding streets of Jerusalem has ever needed a chariot before. 
But he builds on his celebrity status by turning himself into the image of the king he thinks the nation really want. And the presence of 50 men running in front would cancel out the speed advantage. It's a little bit like buying a McLaren supercar if you live on the Isle of Man with its 30-mile-an-hour speed limits. The only reason you do that is to make a statement. And the statement Absalom wants to make is, here is the king that you really want. A different kind of king to David, a king of strength and power and prestige, a king like the other nations have. Now, the fact that Absalom is doing this in the shadow of the palace where there is already a king, already quite a good king, actually, with a proven track record of sorting out Israel's enemies without chariots and horses, the fact that both Moses in Deuteronomy 17 and Samuel in 1 Samuel 8 warned against kings with chariots and horses, none of that worries Absalom at all. Because he knows something about human nature. He knows the thing that every shrewd politician and spin doctor knows, that style trumps substance every time. It's the image that matters to those whose votes you seek. And if Absalom can project an image of a powerful, successful, glamorous king, they will start to believe in that king even though it's an illusion. That's the first thing he does. He cultivates his image. Second thing he does notice is, as well as cultivating a positive image about himself, he projects a negative image of David. Verse 2, he would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from? He would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. Again, this is up to date, isn't it? Isn't this what you hear at every party conference? Undermine the present leadership by relentlessly pointing out their faults and failures, always taking the moral high ground when they do anything wrong, give a sympathetic ear to every cause and concern, promise, promise, promise that you will do what the present leadership has neglected to do. Promise them everything they want without worrying how you're going to do it. You're going to cut tax. You're going to raise benefits. You're going to balance the books. You're going to protect the NHS. You're going to protect the environment. You can do it, but they can't. In short, make the people realize that they'll be better off with you in charge. Well, look at the third strategy he employs. He projects a positive image of himself, a negative image of David. And the third thing, the masterstroke, I think, is he makes himself more accessible and approachable than David. Verse 4, And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed to judge the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me, and I would see that he gets justice. And when everyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. You see the picture? David is up there in his stuffy palace, fiddling around with royal protocols, and Absalom is out on the streets with his hair, getting down to their level, talking their language, allowing them to take selfies of him. He's got the Twitter account that's growing every day. He's making little comments about the state of the nation. He's got his own podcast. He appears on talk shows. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. He is the people's prince. And I wonder if you can see how powerful this is. 
subtly and gradually. And notice he has not uttered a single treasonable word. He's not said, I want to be king. He projects himself, forward-thinking, progressive, downright cuddly. At the same time, David becomes out of touch, old school, bureaucratic, inaccessible. But I wonder if you notice something in verse 5. If you were here for that terrible episode in chapter 13, there's a little verbal parallel where he would take hold in order to kiss is parallel with what Amnon did when he took hold of Tamar to rape her. And if that's a deliberate parallel on the part of the narrator, it draws attention to the real intention of Absalom's charm, which is not to serve the people, but to seduce them, conquer them for his own ends. Well, it's surprisingly up-to-date, isn't it? But you know the most surprising thing of all? It works. Verse 6, Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king, asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. That word stole is there to remind the reader what is really happening. Like so many human beings who aspire to power, the world's way of achieving greatness involves a fundamental deception, a fundamental theft of affection which wins hearts and minds with style but no substance, with promises that cannot be kept, with flattery and concern for their cause, while the only real concern is their own advancement. We've seen this before, over and over again through history, but amazingly, it works. It worked for Absalom, and it worked many times since. It seems, doesn't it, that we don't learn. We are so easily taken in by the superficially impressive, so easily charmed by the attractive and glamorous, so easily duped by prestige and celebrity and wafer-thin promises, so easily won over by power and greatness. And we might want to ask ourselves this morning, why? Why are we so easily fooled? Well, I'll tell you why. Because this is how we've been fooled since the beginning. See, don't you find in Absalom's words to the people an echo of other words in the Bible? Perhaps an echo of the adulterous woman in Proverbs 7. With persuasive words, she led the young man astray and seduced him with a small talk, a smooth talk. And at once he followed her like an ox to the slaughter. We believe lies that promise us good, but are there to do us harm. Or behind those smooth words, don't you find an echo of the serpent in the Garden of Eden? You will not die, he says to Adam and Eve. Follow me and everything will be all right. Or don't you find an echo of the words that the devil used to tempt Jesus in Matthew chapter 4? Trust me and you will come to no harm. Trust me and you can have the world. And if we hear those echoes in Absalom, then that tells you 
that whatever Absalom is building is not the kingdom of God. You cannot do God's work the world's way. He is doing something entirely different. Well, there's the first part of his conspiracy, public image. The second part is a secret conspiracy, 7 to 12. We are to understand from verse 7 that everything we've been talking about in the first six verses, the cultivation of public image, the popular charm, the political campaigning, continues patiently, cunningly for four full years. But now it turns out all of this has just been softening the ground for something more sinister. Now it's time for action. And again, we can follow this in three quick steps. Firstly, a clever lie to David, verse 7. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living in Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I'll worship the Lord in Hebron. Absalom claims that during his exile in Geshur, he struck some kind of a bargain with God in which if he returned safely to Jerusalem, he would repay God by going to worship him in Hebron. Well, apart from the theological dodginess of anyone striking bargains with God, this ought to have aroused David's suspicions because you may remember last time Absalom said, I want to go away and do something innocent. The result was the murder of David's other son. But David appears to suspect nothing, and with great irony, the last words he ever speaks to his warmongering son in verse 9 is, go in peace. The second stage of the conspiracy is to gain popular support, or at least the appearance of it. Verse 10, Absalom sent secret messages through the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests, went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. Now, this is very clever. The secret messengers, literally spies, are sent out to prepare people who are already in love with Absalom after his four years of posturing as their future king. And what he does is he sounds the trumpets and announces that the coup has happened before it's actually happened. Announce Absalom is king in Hebron. He is effectively creating fake news. If you hear that kind of thing announced in the news, who is going to question it? And the renter crowd of innocent guests get drawn in to make it look like this is a big thing that's happening. And so the coup is achieved that way. And then thirdly, he infiltrates David's inner circle. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilenite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. Now we'll see in due course that Ahithophel is an unusually clever man. He's at the heart of David's advisors. He's sort of like a chief of staff type character. And somehow even he falls for Absalom's charms. And so the narrator brings this all to conclusion in verse 12. And so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. And so perhaps for the second time, we are slightly surprised at how smoothly this is all going for Absalom. All his plans are working without a hitch. All his plans are coming together exactly as he hoped. Or so it would seem. 
But as readers of this story in the context of 1 and 2 Samuel, and in its context of the whole Bible, we know, don't we, that there is more going on. Even without glancing ahead and seeing how things work out, and I don't want to spoil the plot, but things don't work out well for Absalom, and it's all because of that hairdo of his. He will come to wish he had a lot less hair. Dangerous thing, this hair business. But I don't want to spoil the plot. Come back in a couple of weeks' time and see how that works out. But even without looking ahead, there are two things we already know that will modify our view that this conspiracy is a success. And it's on these two things that I want to conclude this morning. The first thing we know is that all of this is happening in accordance with the perfect will and sovereign plan of God. See, make no mistake, Absalom's motivations and actions are evil. He's a dangerous egomaniac. He's a Machiavellian prince, an unprincipled plotter who manipulates, deceives, and emotionally violates God's people for his own selfish ambitions. Not only that, but he's a traitor to his own father, a father who has offered him forgiveness and reconciliation and trust over and over again. But worst of all, he is a man who's done the unthinkable The one thing that David refused to do when he was persecuted by Paul, he has lifted his hand in rebellion against God's anointed king. He has shaken his fist at God's Christ, his Messiah. He has committed terrible, real evil. Let's make no mistake. And yet, as we so often see in the Bible, such evil is not outside the will of God. It's not as if God turned his back for a moment and missed it, or was too busy to notice, or was too weak or negligent to stop it. No, this evil happens within the will of God. In fact, let me be clear, this evil is the will of God. How can that be? Because God is sovereign. God is so thoroughly king of his world, so in charge of his world, that in the very process of rejecting God's will, Absalom fulfills his will. Absalom is the way, remember, that God is choosing to fulfill his word of judgment against David's sin. And we'll see this paradox more and more as we go. So there's the first thing that should modify our view, that Absalom is a success He looks like he's winning, doesn't he? As all who play by the world's views look like they're winning, which is one of the reasons we get drawn into those ways of doing things. But this is God's world. It's his plan that he is working out from beginning to end. Only God wins in the end. And he does it in a very different way. We see this at some crucial times throughout the Bible. Remember what Joseph said to his brothers who tried to destroy him. In Genesis 50, 20, he says, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. This is what God does. He uses evil, the rejection of the anointed king, to accomplish his purposes. 
And nowhere do we see this more clearly and shockingly and beautifully than in the final rejection of the final Messiah. Remember the moment that Jesus is lifted onto the cross, lifted there by clever human hands, by politically ambitious human beings. Jesus, David's great son, lifted onto the cross. It looks like the schemes of men have won. It looks like strength and might and cunning and sheer force of will have won. But nothing could be further from the truth. At that very moment, God was winning because that is how he chose to bring his kingdom in. Listen to Peter on the day of Pentecost. He says, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. Jesus' exile and return, his death and resurrection in the will of God. And therefore nothing tells you that God is in charge of this world more clearly than the cross of Christ. See, think about it. If that was the way God chose to bring in his kingdom, if that was the way he chose to save sinners, if that was the way he chose to install Jesus as king of the universe through that weak and pathetic act of humiliation, through that rebellion of humanity against David's son, if that was the way God did it, then how strong is God really? He is stronger than we can imagine. And is that not an encouragement to us this morning? See, we've all had different weeks, haven't we? Some here I know have had very painful weeks. Very, very painful weeks. Disappointment, loss, seeing things end. Others have had happy weeks. Celebrating birthdays, moving house, new marriages, new beginnings. Freshers here, you are so welcome. We are so excited as you make this new start at university. And of course, probably most of us have had kind of average weeks. But what each of us needs to know is that God is king. God is king. How do we know that? Not by looking at the success of our lives. Not by looking at how happy we feel right now or how successful we are doing or how well our world is doing. How do we know God is king? By looking at the cross of Christ. Jesus, exile and return. The most evil rebellion humanity ever launched. The very means that the kingdom has come in. We're going to sing in our final song in a few moments. Though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall, there is still one king reigning over all. So I will not fear, for this truth remains, that my God is the Ancient of Days. The second thing we know, therefore, is that whatever Absalom is achieving, however good it looks, it is not the kingdom of God. It might look glorious for a while, it might look impressive. It might even make people happy. But it won't last because it's not God's work. 
You can do the world's work the world's way, or you can do God's work God's way, but you can't do God's work the world's way. If you do, it won't be God's work that you're doing. And yet, like the people of Israel, we are so easily taken in. We so easily come to think that what is strong and impressive and effective to us is strong and effective and impressive to God. And to assume that what looks weak and foolish and small to us is weak and foolish and small to God. We so easily allow the devil to whisper the lie, trust me, trust power, and everything will be all right. But one of the great lessons we're going to learn from this part of the Bible is that God will build his kingdom his way, not our way. And I think that's one of the reasons we're going to love this part of 2 Samuel, because we're going to get the old David back. The David who believed in the song of Hannah. See, it's in the wilderness and exile and persecution. It's in the weakness and humiliation that we're going to see the David that we came to love return. The David who struck down Goliath with a stone. Because it's when he's at his weakest and most vulnerable that he really will begin to look like God's king, bringing in his kingdom God's way. So there's a lesson for us. I think this morning, and for coming weeks, God has given his people a mission that is big. It's a very big task he's given us to do. And it's very, very difficult. Our mission is to take the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ to the world, to make disciples of all nations, to see Christ's church built in the face of great hostility. It is big and it's difficult. And our ever-present temptation is to do these things the world's way. To long for a bit more power to build the church, for some greatness to influence the world, for strength to fight the enemies of God. And we do this in various ways. We try and win every argument. We try and win every battle. We plot and we plan, we cajole, we manipulate, we argue the people into the kingdom with reason, we force church growth through manipulative leadership techniques, we impress the society with social action, hoping they will flood into the church. But that is not how God's work is done. How is it done? He will use the weak words of the Bible. He will use our faltering conversations. He will use our half-hearted prayers. He will use our humble witness. He will use our suffering. He will use our service he will use our sacrifice. Because this is how his son built the kingdom of God. As Jesus said in Luke 22, I am among you as one who serves. And so church family at Mons, can I ask you, will you believe this this week? Will you speak the word and pray and serve and suffer for the kingdom? Will we be those who believe Hannah when she said, it is not by strength that one prevails, but he will give strength to his king? Well, let's pray that that will be so. Let's pray together.
Paul says in 1 Corinthians, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your kingdom does not depend on the pursuit of greatness and power, but on your sovereign plan to defeat all evil and establish the rule of Christ through the weakness of the cross. And thank you that this is the way you choose to reveal your glory and power to those who are being saved. Please forgive us when we are duped by the superficially impressive claims of those who aspire to power. Please forgive us when we are tempted to adopt their methods in pursuit of kingdom growth. Help us to believe that it's not by strength that one prevails, but you have given strength to your king. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.